Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you might not necessarily expect. Now, people make decisions all of the time and some of those are kind of deliberate and purposeful decisions and others um, maybe less so. So we make decisions about what we say or not say, what we do or don't do. Um, and, and often I think um, you know, the, when you think about decisions, there's, a, there's almost a synonymous link with um, logic and actually emotions are a massive part of decision making a huge part of decision making um and the reality is that emotions drive an awful lot of actions and decisions that we take and so today's episode is going to delve into that area now we are like 43 episodes into the podcast i think and we haven't yet talked about decision making i know we i've mentioned a couple of kind of decision making podcasts on the on previous episodes we've talked about i've talked about the free economics podcast and, and and others that are in there as well but we haven't explicitly really kind of delved into this this idea um, uh, on on emotional work and decision making which is the the title of the podcast today and when um our guest and i had our uh, our usual prequel i really enjoyed the discussion of the debate that we had and i thought this you know what? i think this is going to be make a great podcast um to put it on the air so let's get our guest on the air so welcome to the emotional work podcast simon ashton Hello, how are Hello. you? I'm good, I'm good, how are you? Very well, thank you, very well. Good, good. Now we are recording this in, uh, in the, uh, the midst, what did I say, the midst? Yeah, let's go for the midst, I've said it now, um, of the uh, coronavirus COVID-19 lockdown in the UK. So when I was thinking about my uh, innocuous yet unexpected question, um, which is how we traditionally open this podcast, um, I was inspired by that. So my um, unexpected yet innocuous question for you this morning, Mr. Ashton, is what makes for a good neighbour? Oh, in uh, yeah, in in these in these really uh, uncertain times, I think actually, you know, neighbours. I've actually got to know my neighbours better in these times than I ever have before. So I okay. think a good neighbour for for us is is one that keeps their distance right now in a, in <laughs> yeah. way. Um, but uh, but also that there is a there's a sense of checking in or asking if you are making a, a trip to a, a supermarket or you're getting an online delivery that actually my neighbors not just adjacent to but across the road as well they everyone has asked yeah, yeah. Can, I get, can I get you anything can I if I'm going to the shop do you need anything or Actually, it's a really good time to go now because it's pretty quiet up there or down the road or wherever it is, and they've got these things in stock. So actually, mm. I think this this neighbour thing, I suppose you could take it even further than just being neighbours in terms of on your street, that actually people have seemed to have got much more connected much more quickly. I'll, and I'll, I'm just going to expand slightly. But okay. my, my friendship group, I, I think I've seen and spoken to my friends and that my family more than ever in these last five or six weeks because of the, yeah. of the zoom and the the webex and the different opportunities and i think it's driven this this connectivity this connection this wanting to spend more time with people now i that might be different for others but i just i found that in my in my world that everybody seems to have been looking out for spending more time talking to each other much more frequently and i think that's mm. a wonderful a wonderful thing whether it'll continue the, the the cynics may say maybe not things might just go back to the, the the normal as it was and people look after themselves but who knows hopefully we'll uh, we'll continue in the same vein mm. and and would you um 
would you say that the is it the depth of the interactions that's that's kind of uh that's i don't know if the word is improved but it, it, so is it that you're kind of because you mentioned with your friends and family you'll think you you've not seen them or talked to them as much as you have yeah um, but with your neighbors is it about the frequency of, of connecting with them or is it the depth of connection or both or? yeah i think there's there's a there's a depth of connection in that now we're, we're actually there's, there's we're all in this together and i think it's that that sort of wartime spirit that everyone's doing the same things at the same time and everyone's garden so if we're fortunate enough to have a garden so we look over the fence and and everyone's out in the garden tending to whatever they can they can do so we're always sharing in in that i'm sharing in, in advice and expertise in mm -hmm. my neighbors have helped me with getting my roses a little bit a little bit sorted because the house that we inherited they were they were all over the place and they've been so but i think the, i think the connection and the the understanding that actually how and you know the nhs going out and doing uh, celebrating the the, mm -hmm. the carers at, 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 on a thursday evening that just to see how many people on our street have really taken to that as well shows that and that we're all commenting and all and all complimenting each other for doing that as well i think that yeah, again yeah. shows that there is there is a connection on, on the street that probably wasn't there before and, mm. and a community on 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 my street that probably wasn't there before and i think that's that's an amazing an amazing thing so yeah i think the connections are are deeper i think the information that we're sharing is much more maybe intimate as well i think mm. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's been a really fascinating time from a, a, a people getting to know each other who have lived next to each other or to each other for maybe five, six, I've been in this, this house for six years and you just get to know people much quicker mm -hmm. and much better. So, yeah, and, and for, the, for, the, for the greater good, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So we, we've got, um, we haven't got anybody opposite us, so we've got a church opposite where we are. Um, we've got kind of neighbours each side and uh, it's been really interesting the uh, so the, the neighbours to kind of our our right as you if you look look at our house we got really well with them anyway so we used to call them our um, our fair weather neighbours um, uh, because what would happen typically is the, the moment it kind of got sunny because both um, uh, they and their son and then uh, my, son, my, my wife and I and our three children we all love being outside so whenever the weather got good we'd then end up all being outside kind of at the same time and then that invariably would turn into barbecues or yeah. you know get-togethers or uh, you know th those sorts of things um, and typically we didn't really see them that much over the over the winter um, because you know they were in their house we were in our house and it was almost the um, just being outside in the same place prompted the the, the, the socialising rather than it being kind of something planned and organised. Um, and we're quite lucky that the weather's been good in um, in April. So we've seen them a lot, actually. You know, so there's been lots of conversations happening here in fence, you know, appropriately distanced and um, and all that sort of stuff. And then I was in, uh, where was I guess I was in uh, Asda yesterday doing a weekly shop and I heard the idea of a, a socially distant barbecue. Um, you know, so they have their barbecue in their garden, we have our big barbecue, and I thought, oh, I like that idea because we've been having the conversations over the fence, but we haven't really done the kind of you know sort of chatting and and, and socialising and essentially getting drunk together thing. And so I thought that might be a nice thing to do because we haven't done that. But whereas the neighbours the other side, um, we've got a really different relationship with. You know, it's been neighbourly. You know, we've been checking in on each other and you know, similar to you, you know, 
uh, appreciating when you know everyone's been outside um um, you know, clapping for the NHS and uh, and key workers on the on a Thursday night. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So it doesn't seem to, have, apart from the fact we we're not drinking, we're drinking together less. It doesn't seem to have changed the dynamics of the um, of the relationships either side. And I quite like that because I like it. Um, like you, because it, it's about keeping you know your distance and checking in, but not being on top of each other and you know not constantly being in each other's pockets type thing as well. So. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. So, what do you think? Um, kind of. Uh, so, uh, we've got the. Um, I think. Um, no, sorry, no, sorry. I was. I was going to say. I, I, I think that, that it, you going on to our topic today. You decide who you who you yeah. want to speak to. Do you know, you decide how you interact with those people, and do you decide whether you change? Has the context of your world changed the way you now want to interact? With those people i guess mm. and does it as it as it give you a different mindset around actually oh it's, it's good to talk that's mm. what i said on the btm but <laughs> <laughs> and, and congratulations on getting context in before me you know that's, that's unheard of. <laughs> a, a, a guest getting context in on the podcast before i do that's almost unheard of <laughs> well that's that's it's yeah it's uh occupational habit <laughs> <laughs> um so what what do you think has been driving? So let, let's let's link that into the topic of today then. So um, what might be some of those factors that are driving the decisions that people might be making at the moment? Yeah, I think I think the, the biggest one for me is is fear. Fear, mm-hmm. uncertainty is drives people's um, behaviour, but also just it drives what what they do. So to the decision, and you may we've all got different opinions but the decision to go and run out and buy stock up on on a million toilet rolls when covid19 was first announced and coronavirus and schools were closed was is is that the right decision for the the country so it's you you've heard of the prisoner's dilemma scenario where do you go out there and 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 cooperate or do you look after yourself and i think that in terms of of people who have gone out and and initially stockpiled goods toilet paper in my opinion not the right thing to do and a stupid thing to do but you can understand why they made that decision because they were thinking about survival and keeping themselves alive and keeping their families safe and and so i think that for me is the one key factor why people are, are doing what they're doing right now is it's first of all a, a fear and a survival and then off the back of that there's a number of other factors that that will impact upon their status their uh their standing in the community there's, there's lots of things but i think the first one is is fear first mm. and foremost and and so for for the listener that may not have heard of the prisoner's dilemma um would you want to just expand on that a little bit yeah so prisoner's dilemma is uh it's a pretty fairly old experiment where they uh, to if let's say two individuals uh are caught shoplifting and the, they are taken to the police station and you are then given a certain scenario. Whereas if you, if you um, almost dob in your fellow, your fellow no, shoplifter. No, um, nice use of dobbing in. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, bit, 
bit of a northern but if you if you tell or rat on your fellow uh then there's a different scale in terms of how long you're going to go away for so if you save yourself mm -hmm. you'll have a shorter prison uh sentence a very short prison if you if you if you rat in on your other one then you're gonna have uh or, or you both you both um, cooperate you're going to have a prison sentence but it will be the ultimate the optimum scenario and I think what we're trying to say is that most individuals don't cooperate they tend to go and decide to save themselves mm -hmm. which is great for for one party but for the other party in terms of having maybe a longer prison sentence so I think and Phil you might be able to explain that yeah, prison yeah. Dilemma slightly better but uh, but in from from my perspective I think what we try and and, and in my role in terms of uh, leadership development and what we know is the optimum scenario is if we can all work in unison then work in cooperation and cohesion then and if we are then staying silent in this prisoner's dilemma which means that we're all just we're agreeing to say the same thing then our optimum scenario as a group is better rather than it just being as one individual succeeding and winning and taking the, the cash prize and going home so I think mm. it's about maybe sharing that that cash prize and sharing the resources that we have to be able to succeed as a as a as a group rather than just individuals. So I I agree with you that I think there is a there's a lot of fear um, around and that's then affecting and impacting um, you know the the decisions that people are making often because it's um, you know when when you're I don't really like the phrase in the grip, um, but I can't let me think of a better one. When, 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 uh, when there's a, when you're in a heightened emotional state, although that sounds a bit more kind of waffly and, you know, academic than in the grip, but anyway, um, when, when you're in that heightened emotional state, um, there's a, there's a, a technical term that's called the ref, I suppose if I'm going to go with in that, um, heightened emotional state I can therefore go on to talk about what's called the refractory period so it's which is refractory so the refractory period is is a period of time where you when you're in the grip of an emotion it it, it clouds the filter that you kind of perceive data and information through so it and it deliberately kind of focuses the the, the senses to attend to um, stimulus that reinforce the emotion that you're already experiencing so if for example fear is in response to a threat of some description whether it be a physical threat a psychological threat something along those lines if we're in the the if we're in the midst of that heightened emotional state then we we look around or we we hear things see things and what we we interpret that in a way that reinforces the emotion that or we can interpret things in the way that reinforces the emotion that we're experiencing um, you know, and that's often where kind of the catastrophizing stuff comes from, where it might begin with, um, you know, oh, if if I make if I do this and I get it wrong, then I'm going to be in trouble. And if I'm in trouble, that means I'm going to get a poor rating on my performance review. And if I get a poor rating on my performance review, I'm going to be underperforming. And if I'm underperforming, I'm going to be performance managed. If I'm performance managed, I'm going to be sacked. And if I'm sacked, I'll lose my house. And if I lose my house, I'll lose my family. And if I lose my family, I'll lose my purpose for being there. And, you know, kind of that, yeah. that rapid catastrophization -y, um stuff can, can happen. Um, and that can be because of that, that heightened emotional state that then kind of reinforces the, the emotion that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. In addition to fear, though, um, I was, I, I'm, you know, I, I think there's a lot of sadness going around. So if, if fear is a um, threat of harm thing, 
then uh, sadness is about loss. And that can be loss of physical things, but it can yeah. also be loss of psychological things. But, but the, what's happened with, especially with the social distancing and, and being in lockdown, is um, there's been a lot of loss. You know, it's, I've, I've lost connection with my family, or not I have, sorry. There's potentially the, it could be perceived as, I've lost my freedom because mm-hmm. I can't go out. I've lost choice because I can't yeah. choose what I do. I've lost my work because you maybe that you've lost people have lost their job and or they've been furloughed and or um you know what they were meant to do you know then what their job was has changed so dramatically that they've got to work in a really different way um you know I, I've, I've lost my connection with friends i've lost my connection with family i've lost my opportunity to go to the pub i've lost my opportunity to get for meals you know there's uh, we, we've lost so many things and and i wonder if there's an element of um uh what some people are trying to do is exercise choice in um or exercise exercise what they might perceive to be some degree of choice by taking some actions that they take which might be for example panic buying um but it could also be i was reading a piece on the bbc website just yesterday about um uh, kind of beauty spots in yorkshire and how beauty spots in yorkshire were seeing a really high footfall that there were more um there were more fines issued in Yorkshire over the weekend than there were in the rest of the country combined for people that were, and people journeyed from Kent and Lancashire and, and other places to kind of get there and, um, and, uh, and visit these, these places of natural beauty. And I'm, and I'm reading the behavior thinking, hmm, I wonder why that is then? Cause at some point there was a, a you know, some points those whoever drove that car and all went with them made a decision to go and do that which is you know it's it's against in inverted commas the um the guidance yet it was a decision they made anyway and then part of one is is that because it it it's a pushback at, at choice it's a pushback at you know trying to get something because i've lost so much so much else so yeah. that was a that was a very long no i think that's brilliant and, and if i can come in coming on that i think yeah, that yeah. The, um i think that the choice thing is is choice architecture the way that we go about making our our decisions are are built around habits as well so those people may have done that every single i don't know that time of the year they've gone to that that beauty spot because it's what they've done it's just part of that but i also think that we have more choice than ever before our generation are the the people who are alive right now have more choice in terms of the products that we consume the 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 um activities that we can in, engage with be those social activities the 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 alcoholic drinks we can we can buy from these uh, artisan gin distilleries through to whatever it may be now out there the choice is is unreal and i think that we've almost we're now created a a, a world where expectation is 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 uh is very high and almost a, a feeling that we we deserve this because we work so hard whereas if you went and talked to my parents or grandparents um certainly my grandparents they would go no you do what you're told to do you be you 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 behave and and actually the number of choices that they had to make were pretty weren't was much slimmer and much mm. much smaller and therefore i think we are a we're almost the the product of 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 the way that the world has has developed and because of and again going to decision making long term the amount of information that we consume and that is available right now 
mm. is, un- is unreal. And the brain just can't deal with it anyway in the first instance. So that's why I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it, biases and how the brain sort of takes shortcuts to process mm. all this information is, is key. But I think that the choices that we've, we've made are because of we've created these habits of what we do and we now know that we've got lots of choice and we can do what we want to do. And, and again, there's a question is, generationally are 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 we more do we believe we are and this may be quite controversial but more important than than before so some people think that actually i am i am who i am and i'm a special human being and i can do what i want to do at times and i know that might be because of loss and that might be because i can't do i can't go to the the to watch my team play football or i can't go i forgot sport when i did my list of losses earlier Sorry. which is which is a massive a massive one for lots of people yeah, yeah, yeah. um and it and that can is then creating its own challenges around in in terms of relationships and people being not being able to a see their mates but also that people are at home with partners for long periods of time as well so um but i think there's there's this it, it's decision making and choice is a fascinating subject and it's huge and what does it sit into and where does it fall into around is it down to habits is it down to um, and we had a very interesting conversation about certain uh, about key books yep. out there and one of them yeah. the chimp paradox which is a is by the professor Steve peters who's a psychiatrist up in sheffield and is lecturer in sheffield university and he he is sort of broken down um the neuroscience of how the brain and going back to this fear the emotional part part of the brain how it overtakes the the more rational thinking part of the brain and that is for for me i find it quite an interesting book and although it helps a lot of people you have a different view and we can probably talk about that yeah yeah yeah. but i think that we're talking about habits we're talking about the brain in the first instance and how does the brain deal with these choices deal with these decisions so i think it's a such a fascinating subject and if we've got now four hours brilliant we can sit and talk about that for, for the next for the next actually four days maybe, maybe longer. Um, yeah okay so should we start with the because there was a, there was a lot in there both from you know, from what you were saying and and from some of the bits i was adding earlier on so do we should we start with the biases and heuristics would that be yeah. a useful let's, place to um yeah to let's kick us that. off from yeah go on so let, let's let's start from there then so men, mental shortcuts biases and heuristics so we um i think the first thing that we need to talk about is that we the myth the big myth out there is that we are rational logical creatures that we make decisions um, because we think them through that everything is well thought out and that we that we are very um economical with our brain power and actually that's not true at all and i think what what we've seen through the research and heuristics and biases the the key work is done by daniel kahneman um, who in his book thinking fast and thinking slow and there are lots of other uh, authors who are around that subject as well but i think he sort of made it with his, his partner um made it very very uh, tangible and very very we could understand it but i think the whole mm. point of this is that the brain because of the amount of information that we that we have the brain can uh shortcut and take it and try and predict and decide through a through a, a much quicker means. It's much harder work to go and take it into the, the, the prefrontal cortex and use the, that 
what they call executive functioning functions mm-hmm. part of the brain which is planning and decision making and strategy that all takes place in that frontal uh, frontal lobe but i think that actually what we found is that probably 95 percent of our decisions are made on this sort of uh, level two thinking a much more quicker thinking which is done in different parts of the brain and it's certainly not one specific area but it's done by almost a, a, a reflex rather than a, a reflect you know in terms of sort of reflective yeah. is the thinking part the front the, the one that you do the hard work and then the, re, the reflexive thinking is is the one that's in the in the system too which daniel Kahneman talks about which basically mm. allows us to go and make that decision nice and quickly the brain doesn't really want to work too hard and therefore by making those decisions and there are there are lots of heuristics and biases and i think there's at the last count i think there's about 220 biases that they that they've identified so far in in our thinking and on what mm. we do and we can and we'll we can touch on some of the specific ones but i think what what people and i do um there's a key module in terms of how I train and, and some of the key things that I try and help leaders and managers in is critical thinking as a topic. Mm. And I think critical thinking is a, it's, it's an area where I think the, the uh, world economic forum, they, they did a survey, um, a bit of research 2015, what were the skills, top 10 skills that you need 2020, what are the top 10 skills that you need and critical thinking, creative problem solving, are at the top of both lists and I think will net will be continuing in the next five years as well ultimately particularly with where we are now and what what the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis has created for businesses those who can crunch a problem make a decision for the greater good of their organization and their people are going to get but the key factor is are we aware of all these biases these shortcuts the the things that that we our brains naturally go to be that is it about experience? Do we just rely on our experience as one of them? That we just go back to what we've done time and time again because we know we're super experienced. Now, some might argue that's great because I am super experienced. I know exactly what I'm doing. But is that always the best, um, the the best source to rely on to make then that next decision and make that critical decision for your for your business? Mm-hmm. Other ones such as uh, sunk some lots of ways let's say you've hired an individual in your organization and you did the hiring and you appointed the person but this person just isn't cutting it they're just not they're not right they're not they're not right for the business they're not right for your team and the amount of time you're investing to try and get that person up to the level and try and get the training and the capability up just isn't working now the because we don't want to admit to either our wider group or to ourselves that we've made a mistake and that's that fear of failure or or looking silly to a a, a group Mm -hmm. we will continue to invest in that person and try and get them back to love whereas actually maybe the best the best decision the best option is actually we that person is is managed out of the business or we we give them we place them somewhere else in the organization that's better suited to them so they're just a couple of examples but i think that we could talk all day about heuristics and biases um, because i think that's again it's a really fascinating part of decision making critical thinking um how we operate on a day-to-day basis <clears throat> absolutely and um so that that pattern making um thing i i, I talk about uh, as well from a um 
from a linguistics point of view, which might sound a bit strange, like, you know, Phil, why are you talking about um, <coughs> pattern? Why are you talking about patterns and language and decision making? So um, often we make decisions about what people are going to, what people are saying based on the patterns that we've had with that person and or people like them before. And what that then does is it interferes and impacts with our ability to listen and that therefore that then um, can lead to um, less effective decision making kind of approaches. So especially if it's somebody that you, if you think about and this is something that, you know, this is, I guess I'm talking to you and the audience at the same time. If you think about somebody that you know really well, and think about a, in a typical, if you want to keep it in the workplace, you can, or personally, either one is okay. Think about a typical interaction with them. And there will be certain phrases or certain sayings or certain stories that when somebody kind of, when that person begins on that, um, on that narrative, um, or they, they say a certain number of words in a row, you know what's going to come. You know what's going to come next. You, know, you you can you can you can script it out in your head to know exactly what that person is going to say, and the challenge that we have is that the person doesn't always say that. There might be that nine times out of ten they do, and in which case that mental shortcut then therefore for you is a really helpful and a really useful thing to do. Whereas for the one time out of ten where they don't say what you expect them to say, actually you miss all of what they have actually said, and if you miss all of what they've actually said then whatever decision you make on how you reply or, or what you do with that information or what you do with what happens next, then you've just lost all of that. You know, and and, and I, I see it all the time in, um, in meetings that I'm part of. You know, I'm brought in to consult with an organization about you know, where they're going or strategy. And um, I, I watch the interaction that's happening at, you know, with the senior leadership teams. And they're just not listening to each other in any way, shape or form. And, and I'm sat there just blown away by how much they are filling in what other people are saying based on what that person typically says and they're not actually listening to what the other person is saying and then that takes them down a track where they make some really poor decisions and I'm sat there as uh, you know working really hard to be attentive and actually listen to what somebody's actually saying and what they're not saying but that's a whole other thing I'll come on to that maybe later um and then I, I'm sat there going I don't understand where you're going like yeah and then when I play it back after the, the the response is yes that was what i was actually saying and it wasn't what that person thought i was saying I was like, okay well then we need to do something with that then and that for me is an, another example of those shortcuts because it's easier for us um to, to not really listen because it, it, it just eases capacity in the brain um and a previous guest on the podcast cliff lansley he talks about us being cognitive misers you know we're as human beings we're cognitively lazy if we can find a shortcut then we will do, you know, we'll use that shortcut rather than if we can find that rule of thumb, then we'll use that rather than, um, yeah, rather than, than give all of our attention to whatever that particular um, yeah. Yeah, thing is at that particular point in time. Because I, I, th I think that, that hard work, because um, we feel that hard work in the brain, that's when you get home after making lots of decisions and especially when you get further up the 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 hierarchy in organizations, that is your role ultimately to make decisions, to make the calls, why that business is going to go and invest or acquire or, or um, launch new products, whatever it may be. And I think that when you get home, you, you feel cognitively depleted. Do you know what I mean? You can feel you're, mm. you're sort of 
you're, you're tired and, and done in. And that's why when, because I think that, that prefrontal cortex, that bit that does the decision making and also self-control part as well is when you step through the door and you, and I've got three young kids and if they, they can be a handful at times, if you, if you don't check yourself before you walk in through that door, you make the wrong decision in terms of your, you react in the wrong way because you're, you're exhausted because you've made all those decisions all day and it's and i think it's a really interesting point around those meetings you know when you sat listening to other executives or leadership teams talking and you're right that they don't listen to each other a because listening's hard work they're also in their own mind thinking about what they need to do next on their own decisions on their tasks ahead and also mm. i think sometimes and i don't know if you agree Phil, but sometimes the meetings are arranged at the wrong time so people tend to have different peaks and troughs in where their attention and where their ability to make decisions is because of their cognitive resources. So let's say for me, my power hour is sort of 10, 11, 10 to 11, 10 till half 11. And that's when I can get a lot of stuff done and make some good decisions and tackle the eat, eat those frogs. Mm -hmm. uh, nice Brian Tracy reference. Yeah. There. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and again a decent book worth reading although quite it's, it's a little bit maybe dating now but it's it still got some good stuff in there um, but anyway um i think that when you make those decisions is, is imperative to how good the decisions are as well so if you're doing them at four o'clock five o'clock in the afternoon that, that might be necessary i'm not saying that we can organize everybody's diaries to be when everyone's in the power hour but i think it's important that we recognize that there are certain times in the day where we don't make the best decisions because we are cognitively tired yeah and, and there's um there's a really interesting study i think it's in thinking fast and slow actually so uh, it, it might be a bit of an older study now but they, they were the the research was into parole and, and the likelihood of gaining parole so it was in the u.s in particular yes. the study um and and depending on what time of day your your file went before the judge could dramatically affect the the chances of which you would receive parole yeah, I think it was close. before lunchtime. I think that's yeah. what it said because then after lunch that that they maybe have a, a heavier lunch and they had something to eat and therefore felt a little bit more lethargic and therefore and 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 they'd made a lot of decisions. They made a lot of of parole decisions during the during that day. So if you got to the end of the day, you stood no chance basically. Mm. <laughs> and, and I was talking to um, I was talking to somebody recently when I was doing some coaching, and we were talking about decision fatigue. Um, and we were discussing how that at work, um, you know, they, they find themselves being really decisive. And when they get home, the last thing they want to do is to make a decision. You know, when, when, when they get home, what they want is somebody else to decide for them. Um, and it, it, it was interpreted by their partner, I can't remember if it was spouse um, uh, or partner, so I'll just go for partner. Um, as ambivalence you know is interpreted as, as not caring and you know and, and uh, you know well I, i'm you know the, the space would say well I, I want to know what you want to do because you know i want to account for your preferences and your you know your wants and needs in, in whatever we do and the person says, oh, I, I just don't care and, and that's not ambivalence it's a i'm just exhausted from making decisions i've been making decisions all day and i don't want to make any anymore um and, and you know, they were talking about how it, it can then affect that relationship at home because of it, because it, it's interpreted as as the not caring, but also then it causes friction in the mm -hmm. relationship at home because um, 
you know, the, what, the, what the other person wants is to be considerate and, you know, kind of thinking about the other and not dictating everything that happens. Um, but the individual wasn't able to articulate that, you know, so it was only through the sessions that we got to the output where they're like, oh, that's what it is. It's decision fatigue. You know, so we, it was the, out, what we, we talked about was the friction that was happening at home and how difficult they found that. And then, you know, over the course of the conversation, we got to the point where they realised what it was, that actually it wasn't that, um, you know, is that they've yeah, it was that they've run out of, of energy for for making decisions because they've made so many during the course of the day. Definitely, yeah, and and then, which then uh, explains why we tend to watch the same things on Netflix or our go-to programs. Do you know what I mean? Because they're just, yeah. it's, it's, or we, and this is one that we do because both my wife and I work full time. We uh, we have a, a menu that sets ready every week that we've already sorted on sunday to make sure that we know what we're having monday to friday for, for evening meals oh so, i thought you were talking tv i thought you had no, a tv no, menu. No, i was like no. wow that is super organized no no not, not that organized but uh, but certainly for, for meals we get in and 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 know what we're having so that it's it's all sorted rather than you know, having to think oh, what do i want to have this evening because even that small basic choice can be hard work and then you eat poorly and then you, if you're eating poorly you're sleeping poorly and if you're sleeping poorly then you you know it, it all sort of cascades into into the physiological as well as the psychological it all links into each other massively so um so yeah really interesting well that was the, that was one of the other um practices that so i, I did a, a quite a few years ago now, actually i had a long-term uh, contracts doing sort of three days a week with a particular client and towards the I, I was uh, I got fed up with the the everybody saying about back-to-back oh I'm back-to-back all day I'm just I'm just back-to-back so um, I made a decision that I would only meet for 45 minutes so I was always going to give myself a 15-minute window in between meetings you know, I was like, so, you know, oh yeah, but your your last meeting finishes at two. So can I meet you? At, can I meet you then? No, you can have me at two fifteen. Oh, but I, I've got another meeting at three. Well, that's fine. We can just meet for forty five minutes. It doesn't need to be an hour. Well, but do you really need that break? I'm yeah. If you want me and you want all of my attention and you you know you want me to be fully present and you want me to contribute to you know, contribute effectively and make a difference in that meeting, then yeah. Because mm-hmm. if I don't, I'd be you know. I'll just be fueling up on, I mean, I don't drink coffee, but fueling up on tea and sugar and, you know, that then leads to impatience and impatience leads to poor decision-making and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, but that choice to say that I know, and, and all you're doing is relying on the information that you know about yourself. And I think, again, decisions are made based on good data, good information, but you've got to be aware of that information, even if that's, you know physiological information about how you perform and where you perform well in decision making during the day and that you know if i can have 45 minutes a good strong 45 minutes and 15 minutes then of a break stretch walk water and then back into the next meeting that's the data i know works for me hmm. and i think that it, it all starts with it all starts with good information first of all to make sure we're taking on that information and being aware of that information and particularly if it's for you as an individual making decisions, putting that flashlight onto you as an individual is what, what is your self-awareness? What are my, you know, my, my assumptions, my, my biases, my beliefs, but also what are my, what my actions, what am I doing? If, if I'm having uh, five meetings back to back or each, each an hour long, 
where am I even going to go and have a comfort break? Where am I going to even go and join? I know that lots of um, my wife has talked about that, that in the organization, they've, they've shortened their meetings to make sure that people can actually go and, and have a stretch and go and have a comfort break and then come back rather than having five hours of, of just back to back. Because I think lots of organizations have found that now, that although you can't now walk down the, str- down the corridor to an office or to another person's desk and say hey how are you doing it's now i've got to organize meeting after meeting virtual meeting after virtual meeting virtual meeting and actually people in certain organizations are busier than they've ever been right now because mm. of those back-to-back virtual meetings yeah and, and that's where it potentially um links into um you know some of that uh societal slash ego pressure to be busy and to be and to be online and to be um you know to to be present because if i'm not present if people so either from a um potentially from a a line manager to members of team perspective which is if i can't see them they're not busy and they're not doing anything and what are they doing and i don't know or there's a um i need to i need to be showing that i'm present and showing that i'm busy and showing that i'm on um, you know, a, a friend of mine told me a while ago that uh, when her husband worked for one particular company, the the implicit competition um, between a, a group of managers was who could be the last person to comment before the day ended, and who would be the first person. You know, so this is like a WhatsApp group of of um, a group of leaders, uh, you know, peers, and then their boss. Um, but you know, it, it was on the the unwritten rule was the boss was was interested in who was commenting last and who was commenting first. So what it meant was people, you know, somebody would go on WhatsApp at half past midnight to go, oh, I had this great idea, and then somebody else would be on at you know, half five in the morning going, oh yeah, I've had an even better one. I think um, because of the, the kind of the, the the pressure or the expectation to be on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that must be a real challenge at the moment for you know, coming back to almost coming back full circle to where you began, you know, with, with the fear and the uncertainty and, the, you know, I've got these people that are disparate and spread all over the place and I don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know what they're doing, they can make me look bad. And if they make me look bad, that could mean, you know, I get a poor, I get a poor rating. And if I get a poor rating, then I'll get underperforming and so on and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, I think, I think that point you were making then about the, that who's the it's almost that social conformity, isn't it? I need to show that I am I'm doing what other people are doing, so I'm not out of that that group in group out group, um, mm. which is again something that we all we all, we all fall into. And I think um, I remember an experiment by Philip Zimbardi, the Human Zoo. I think he would talked about where they actually. One person um, was was set aside. They weren't told about the scenario. The other thirteen in the room were told about that they were going to set a fire or a pretend fire under the door of this room, and they they blew the smoke into the room, and the thirteen people were sat there just carrying on listening to whatever was happening in front of them. And and the one person was going, "Can you not see that smoke that's coming through?" The door? And it, and didn't say anything and kept and kept just looking looking at people going, there's no reaction here. I don't understand why people aren't reacting. And the smoke kept coming through and kept coming through and kept coming through and, it, and the person didn't move and didn't move. And, and the point is that they would have ultimately not died, but the, the, the severity of that situation gets worse and, and worse and worse. But the person's not going to move because everyone else is doing it. Yeah. Everyone else is staying where they are. And that, that 
that bias of of being able to just stay there. and i think that's what you're talking about there is that that we're accepting the fact that i want to keep going until half 12 one o'clock two o'clock in the morning to prove that i'm in part of the group but also that i'm i'm in the eyes of the boss doing the right thing and that's mm. from an emotional and a, a psychological and, a, and a, just a stress perspective is and yeah that's that's a challenging place to work if you're uh, if you want to be on all the time wow yeah, and, and I think it, it links into, oh, well, I say it links into, I'm going to link it into um, the, because, you know, we, we all craft identities, you know, we, we craft identities all of the time. And, and regular listeners of the podcast may now kind of hear me going on something that I talk about a lot anyway. Um, so we, we craft these these identities that we have by, by taking... Um, you know, by taking lines in terms of what we say or what we do or the actions that we um, that we choose to make and then what that does is once it starts to create that identity we then want to act in accordance with it you know you can link that into um, uh, Robert Cialdini's stuff if you want to with the mm-hmm. commitment and consistency principle you know that once we made a commitment to do something we want to we want to act in line with that but also organizations and or managers put those identities on people because they can say, you know, the type of person that succeeds here is, you know, and organizations do it with their values or their, you know, their, their purpose statements or their, you know, organizational behavior, competency frameworky things, because they say, this is what, these are the behaviors that, that are needed to succeed here. Um, and they, so they can do it explicitly in that way. But also um, managers or organisations or groups, I guess, in, as well, can can place um, identities on people. You know, to say, well, if you work here, you are one of these. You know, so if you work at Amazon, you're an Amazonian. If you work at Google, you're a Googler. Um, yeah. And 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 that you know, those things then come with those identities that are put on you come with a set of expectations, and. And if you don't conform with those expectations, thinking back to, to your point, if you don't conform with those expectations, that has implications. You know, mm-hmm. that has that, well, I say it does. It potentially has implications and ramifications because if you don't comply, you then are, you're then part of the out group. And if you're part of the out group, that may be a good thing, but it may not be a good thing. No. Another, another, another organization that I used to work, uh, work in regularly said, right, we need, to, we need to bring in some different kind of people you know, we need to, we need to, we, we recruit in our own image. We need to shake things up. We need to bring new people in. And, and routinely what would happen is we'd bring them in. They'd last anywhere between 12 and 18 months. And then the organization would metaphorically chew them up and spit them out because they were so, the individuals were so different to what the rest of the organization was like, even though you know, the organization is saying we want different when different arrived, it would be like, no, actually, I'm not sure we do want different because different is, challenging and hard and asks difficult questions and doesn't conform and pushes back and acts in a way that's different to what most people do and actually oh do i want that i'm not sure if we do want that so maybe we maybe they need to move on maybe there's a, a new opportunity waiting for them somewhere yeah that that homogenous and heterogeneous groups they're the ones that that if everyone thinks the same then they're, they're easy to manage but the results are pretty average mm. Well, and, and it's, it's safe. And it's, it's groupthink, isn't it? And I think that's where this opportunity to be able to stick your head above the parapet and just say something different is that's where the great ideas come from, the great decisions come from, the, the great problems come from. But actually, 
if that leader, and I think I talk about this a lot, but if, if, that, in, if that culture and the leadership team are saying the same thing all the time, why, why would you stick your head up and go, I've got a different idea, I've got a different way of doing it? Because it, it's, but it is psychological safety. I suppose that's the other thing, isn't it? Psychological safety to be able to say, do you know what, hold on a minute. Uh, no, that's not, that's not right. I know that Amazon do have one of their values is to challenge the assumptions, to go out there and really challenge assumptions consistently. Well, yeah. whether it's, it, it's said and whether it's done are two different things because that's mm. the same with lots of organisations. But I think that that's this, this challenging of other people and having a, a really diverse mix of, of human beings in it because individual decision-making versus group decision-making, that's a whole different topic, isn't it? As well, because I get, yeah, yeah. getting a group of people together to make a decision versus, so if that leader is very experienced and doesn't, uh, it's open to ideas and just takes it by, yeah, listens but doesn't listen and therefore the group just kind of carry on if if the group themselves are all the same and quite homogenous then the, the decision is going to be pretty so what's the decision making process within a group uh that, there's lots of really interesting studies around group thinking group decision making uh but yeah i mean again culture to going back to your point makes her has a huge impact on the way that lots of organization decisions are made without a doubt mm. Um, because earlier on we talked about biases and heuristics and, and that decision making in group bit um, make, one, of the, one of the ones that when I started to, to read Canapan and Tversky's um, stuff one of the ones that really stuck with me was the anchoring heuristic Yeah. Um, and the especially from a facilitation point of view um, whether it be facilitating meetings or you know facilitating events or facilitating learning um, is something that I'm really mindful of now when when I'm opening up a discussion and opening up a, a debate you know that, that needs you know people to make a when I'm asking people to make a judgment or make a decision on on their thoughts on something you know whether that be I'm asking them to rate their 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 belief in our ability to succeed out of 10 or whether I'm asking them to say you know do you think we should do a b c or d the the, the first person to go will then create an anchor that everyone will tend to to hang around you know and you're, you're less likely to get um or you're more likely that that initial kind of vote for want of a better phrase or that that initial opening is going to create a, a point that you then anchor yourself around whereas actually if if people were were able to to take some time and think more independently and individually you might get a, a broader range of answers so one of the things that I'll often do is ask people to to write something down on a on a post-it note or uh, or equivalent to do it individually in response to a question, so that we don't get that that um, that heuristic or that bias at play, so that we get a broader. Uh, well, the aim is to get a broader, uh, maybe a more authentic view of of responses, because even though people might not think they're influenced by what that first person said, whether they might think they're influenced by them or not is less relevant than whether they are actually influenced by them yeah I th- I, i've done that myself in in uh in training events and facilitation events and i've i've asked one person how would you score yourself uh on whatever exercise it was and and then you, if you go around the room and ask other people how they're feeling you're never going to get an honest or a a, 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 a true perspective of, of what that person's feeling so that an- anonymity as you're saying write it down on a piece of paper really then and i think also letting the boss speak last 
as well. Do you know if you're in a meeting or you're in a group, let that the the the, the boss goes out there and asks for individual opinions and asks for what people are thinking rather than speaking first. Now a lot of the time it's almost classed as the leader of that group to say, This is where we're at, this is what I'm thinking, this is what where we're going, and you've already then primed them, anchored them straight away into what they're what they're gonna say or maybe challenge what they were going to say and go to mm. a safer option. So if you are a leader, sit back and let the team talk first so that you can then at least get, get maybe a truer picture before anchoring them with, with your own views and opinions. Mm, definitely. Okay. So there's a few things that, that are running through my head. So one is that we've talked about um so we've, we've mentioned a couple of things that i'm not sure we've um we've explored um or maybe there's more opportunity to explore because if i say we haven't explored them fully that's me putting my value judgment on it so um we've talked about habits and i'm not sure we've really explored habits or I'm not sure if there's anything any more you want to explore around habits we've also talked about um is there potentially something uh, generationally or culturally about people kind of feeling or, or, or being kind of more important than because um, you were talking about, uh, you know, the, that was when we were discussing the um, after we talked about the prisoner dilemma and thinking about, you know, is am I in it for me or, or is it for the collective good? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there, might, if there might be something around that to explore. Um, are there any other biases and heuristics that we want to um, that we want to explore and talk about? Um, and then we've talked about the chimp paradox as well. So um, those are the, the, uh, the things that I've kind of noted down as we've been working our way through. So think, well, do we want to go back and explore those some more? Because I'm just conscious that I want to make sure that, that we, uh, we explore all the different areas that, um, that you're looking to, to talk about. Is there anything else that you'd want to add to that this time that we haven't talked about so far? I think one of the things that I would put in there is, is the, the skill of, of questions and questioning yourself but also questions that allow us to open up the open the floor to make a better decision so what i mean by that is i think that lots of individuals we don't we don't ask brilliant questions or beautiful questions to be able to get to the decisions and if we ask the questions because the question is that what shall i have for breakfast what shall i what shall i wear today we ask ourselves questions all the time but we tend to maybe go to the easier answer of the question and make it an A or A or a B, a one or the other. And actually, if we can keep it open and put options on the table, that then makes it a, a much more a richer answer and a richer decision or a problem that we've solved. So I think questions are, a, are something that I think are a, a skill, first of all, but something that really helps in decision making as well. Okay. All right, so um, so we've got a nice list there then. So we've got habits, anything else to explore in there, biases and heuristics, um, the kind of uh, me versus um, us, chimp paradox and questioning. So what I'll do then is in a second, I'll hand the floor over to you to think about uh, which one of those you want to go and explore next. So out of the, the list that you, uh, you gave, Mm-hmm. The generation difference, the the habits, the chimp paradox. I think let's let's start with the chimp paradox because okay. ha- how does that help? Um, how does that help individuals um, make better decisions? And I think that uh, we'll go back to our conversation before we we 
had the podcast before we were recording we um we have differing views in terms of um the the benefits of that or maybe not the benefit but in terms of how that um information has been distilled into Mm. a piece of literature to be able to help other individuals and i think that for for me the the world of neuroscience and psychology um uh, they are such difficult uh and challenging spaces some of the people who are in these fields are geniuses and they're super clever and the topics and the research that were being generated and created is 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 mind-blowing for lots of people but i do think that it's information that does need to be distilled to help people make decisions on how they want to interact with their world be that with their relationships be that with um, and that's relationships at work and at home is that how they help them communicate better with individuals is that how they deal with their their own decision making and what they do and i think that what that what it does really nicely is breaks down that the brain into which bits are doing what now that is it is simplified very oversimplified and i think steve peters would say that it is super super simplified but what it mm-hmm. does do is is breaks it into a into manageable chunks because of the amount of information that that people are consuming nowadays i think to be able to to turn that into something that allows me to go okay so if i am reacting in this way because i think that the one thing about making a decision is and i do this myself is that you either and we talked about it you either react to something or you respond to something you either react in that it's a, an immediate um and sometimes maybe not the most perfect reaction to us mm-hmm. to a stimulus to a stimuli to, to your to the thing that you've just seen or that's happened to you and that could be a an, an email that comes into your inbox and you from your boss i need to see you immediately and your reaction might be straight away i mean what have i done i've messed yeah. up again well, you, you didn't swear i was expecting you to swear i nearly did but i've done it again i've or, or this is all that catastrophizing thing i've made a real mess of this right now or or oh, that piece of work but i I thought it was good and I've handed it, I passed it across to them and maybe they, so what you're doing straight away is you're reacting, your brain is reacting to this, uh, this, this catastrophizing, I'm going to be sacked or oh, well, what does this mean? I'm going to have to stay later today or blah, blah, blah. all these things start going through your, mm. through your head. And actually, if we can put the handbrake on that, which is this sort of the emotional brain, let's make it as, as simple as, 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 maybe Steve talks about it in terms of the chimp, this yeah. emotional part of the brain is, is making that reaction and then making the decision of how you're going moving forward with it. Whereas if we can maybe put the handbrake on it and, and think of it through a more, uh, more logical, and I know we said at the top of the, this program, we're not logical and we're not rational, but we can be more logical, more rational if we try and use the right sort of techniques and the responses. So I think that's re- this react and respond. I think this book, The Chimp Paradox, does a really good, good uh, job of helping people not just react and therefore react in, an, in, a, in a, a negative way to certain certain scenarios and settings it helps them respond and therefore make the right decision to then continue um, down a path that is much more productive much more effective and therefore give a much more successful outcome mm. discuss <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so i think so i've been reflecting since our um since our conversation um 
because I, I, I came away thinking, have I got my head up my own ass? Um, because the, I think the, the key, or for, from my recollection, was the key tenet that we, that we disagreed on was um, that I, I was saying, I don't think oversimplification is helpful. Um, you know, the, these processes and the interplay and interaction of these processes is really complex. And my concern is that it's a, it's a gross oversimplification of what is a really complicated thing and and that's why i don't like it and and at the risk of and and you're there so i was about to put words in your mouth and i don't want to do that um my my recollection of your response was yeah but phil some people just need it to be really simple and because if you can give it to people really simply then they they can take it and make sense of it and get on board with it and and you know, make better decisions off the back of that if I was to link it back to yeah um to the podcast. So I came away thinking, have I just got my head at my own ass then? You know, am I am I um uh yeah. Just could you know, yeah. Am I yeah, I can't I can't think of other, any other words than have got my head at my own ass. Um <laughs> and I think the the place I landed is yes I have a bit. Um and because I think about kind of um uh, Kahneman and Traversky stuff as well, you know, with System 1, System 2. I read stuff online sometimes, um, you know, where, where those two things are referred to as different processes in the brain, and, mm-hmm. and they're not those things. You know, and, and, and both Kahneman and Traversky have, have openly said in the literature that they published that System 1 and System 2 aren't different processes. They're not different systems. You know, you, you don't have a, a System 1 set of circuitry in your brain and then a system two set of circuitry in your brain that they are a that they're a metaphor to help people um kind of get their head around what is you know that there is a set of stuff that comes together to do shortcuts and there's a set of stuff that comes together to be more considered and more you know kind of deliberate in in the way that you go about making decisions and sometimes you might use the wrong set of you might use the wrong combination of stuff depending on the situation and depending on the context. You know, if you're deciding whether you should have beer A or beer B, maybe the level of deliberation that you're having for that is is less helpful than just going with what you know you like, which is that one over there. Whereas if you're having to, you know, make a decision about whether or not to, you know, take a new job or to move house or to whatever that might be, then that be might be a place where for deliberation and you know purposefulness in your thinking might be useful and come in. Yeah. So um, I, I, I do, I do still think there are better books out there than what Steve Peters, the, 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 than the chimp paradox. And at the same time, I, I can, I can get why it, it works for, for a lot of people because it's, it's easy to get your head around. It's, um, you could do, you could do something with it quite quickly and easily so that, you know, I, I, I get that. And I think just to jump in on that, I think there's the simplifying of, of, of information, of quite complex information and research and making it uh, accessible is, as you, you've already said, Kahneman and Tversky stuff is, is, is not dissimilar in a way. I mean, it's a little bit more rigorous in terms of the, the book, but I think that they breaking it down into one or two, there's a lot of, there's a heck of a lot of stuff going on in system one, there's a heck of a lot of stuff going in system two as well yeah. at the same point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that I think 
what we need and it's why acronyms are, are made in 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 leadership literature or to, in, in the world so we can remember a memory plays a big part in decision making as well because if it's a good memory and sometimes we might go with that if it's a again bad memory we might go away from it and not make that decision and not try and tackle that thing that went wrong last time but memory i think if we can make things simple and remember so an acronym um that helps you then use a process to be able to make a better decision is, is a simplifi simplification of, of just a, a bunch of words that are put together or, or a bunch of steps that are put together potentially. But at least if it helps you, and I think this is the whole point of what, what you and I do in our professions, we're trying to help people be better at what they do mm. ultimately or, or pro produce better results than they are right now whether that's on a one-to-one -one basis an organization cultural setting whatever it may be and i think that how the individual can absorb that information if some people like to really get into the nuts and the bolts because i've been asked a number of times on on our programs why do i need to know about what's going on in the brain what, yeah. what's, the, what's the point yeah and uh i've said well uh because actually some people do want to know that the the, the intricacies or the which part is doing what or the the bits that are, are interacting with each other because it helps them then get to that that um position of okay in this situation now i know this is what's happening so it just gives me a little bit more of a flashlight a little bit more of an understanding and, a, and, a, and, a, and an awareness and for some other people they don't they don't want that detail they just want to get an acronym or something a bit more simplified and they can use that and go and run with it straight away as well so i think when we're when we're talking about this simplification i think it's it's horses for courses individuals need different things but i think the ultimate is we're trying to make it because we know that the research is out there for all these different areas that we cover there's some amazing stuff but it's way too complicated for for um for it to be transferred into the workplace but if I guess that's our job as well to try and make it as simple, but as detailed and as effective as, as possible mm. to help people make better decisions, make right? so find the solutions to their own individual problems, be that interpersonal, be that uh, financial, be that operational, whatever it is. Mm. So I think, um, I think it's uh, uh, for me and, and also, um, even there, the, the, the other books that, that Steve's done for, for kids, it, again, sort of oversimplified, but it's helpful for, for, for kids nowadays, particularly from an emotional regulation point of view and an understanding what's going on emotionally. That's, that's something that I'm quite I'm passionate about because I don't think, it's certainly coming in, it wasn't in, in the education system when you and I were growing up in terms of thinking, talking about emotions and emotional regulation. And yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. It, is now slightly thanks to people like Steve Peters, who at least and that and that for me, going back to the point of this, is emotions at work. I think that's a brilliant thing that those sort of books at least help my kids to to talk about how they're feeling and what they're doing, how it makes them be able to interact with people better and, and not bottle things up and and be able to yeah communicate. Whereas I think in our in our generation, no, not even close. <laughs> Not even close to anything like that. Yeah, I mean, one one of my self-deprecating quips that I sometimes use when I'm speaking is, you know, I bet you never thought you'd see, uh, you know, a man on stage talking about emotions. I bet you never thought you'd see a forty-year-old 
man on the stage talking about emotions, but you never thought you'd see a 40-year-old middle-aged white man, middle-class white man talking about emotions. Um, you know, because, yeah, like you said, it, it, it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't as, as common as it is now to, to be okay to be talking about that sort of stuff. Which I think links into this generational, the, the, the other part on the list, which was about generational differences. And I think that we are, we're still probably still seeing the, the uptake of individuals from a baby boomer level who want to go and learn about emotional intelligence and understand actually how does that improve decision making and then improve their performance going forward. It doesn't, it's, there's still a hesitation, I guess, around that, that, that bracket in the population. I don't know whether you agree, but I do believe that we now know that the, the research is there, that EI is, is a, is a key, a key pointer to success in the workplace. But I still think that generationally, and certainly from a male to female perspective, it will be mostly uh, a female audience talking about emotional intelligence or prepared to understand more about emotional intelligence than, than a male audience in my world. And it will probably be the 40, 40 year below, so down, that would be, be attending as well in terms of an age group. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, I, I certainly... The, there are... There are differences in in expectation, I think, currently to what there have been in the past. Um, so one of the things I, I, I really struggle with generation with generational yeah. generalizations. That's the bit that I really struggle with. Um, even though I make fun of myself using one um, earlier on, um, because there are all you know there are always those that that don't break the mold you know and, and you look at I think if you look at someone like me like I'm I'm 42 now so I think depending on which model you work with I could either be a millennial or I could be a whatever the one was before that um, and and I think and at the same time you know I know people so if you if you think about you know um, you know people wanting I don't know, let's say uh, people wanting purpose and meaning in their jobs. That's, that's something that for the last, say, 10 years, you know, Simon Sinek in particular popularized yeah. that particular um, model. You know, he talks, you know, he, he, he uses generational stuff within the work that he does. And I disagree with him in a lot of ways because I, you know, I work with a lot of people from of many ages who want purpose and meaning in their work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not something that is, um, uh, it's not something that is due to the year that you were born in. It's to do with the changes in society have made it to that point. And this come back to what you were saying earlier on about the, the plethora of choices that are available. You know, if you go if you go back in time forty years, the the, the number of careers or professions that you could join was limited in comparison to today. So, you know, the, the, the number of professions or careers that you could have 40 years ago is very different to what you can have now. Part of that is because of social mobility, both in terms of um, you know, class mobility. I, I know less about, you know, so uh, I know there is more class mobility, I think, than there was, but it's still not a massive thing. But when, I, when I'm using the word social mobility, I'm talking about the ability to move geographically. You know, so whether that be within a country or internationally, 
or whatever that might be. And so the the options that you now have for what you could do with a career are so different to what they were back then. So if you then have this choice, so if, if you have, you know, you've gone from, and I know this is media gross oversimplification now, but if you go from having five career options to having 50 career options, what might have made you decide which one of the five you chose might be different to what makes you choose one, which one of the 50 you choose. Yeah. You know, and that's where something like I, I believe <coughs> finding purpose and meaning in your work is something that is is available as an option for people now. And again, not everybody. I'm, I'm, you know, there are some people who don't have that option. You know, they because of their um, societal um, status or because of their, their personal circumstances, they might only have a number of options for, for where they can go to choose a job. And that's that's where I struggle with the general the, with the generational generalizations i think it's it's much for me it's a combination of what's happening in society at a, at a moment in time as in now but also what has happened in society for those individuals during those those formative years when their identities were formed yeah um yeah so that's a very that was a very long answer to your question sorry no no but i think that going on that point about purpose purpose has been around forever i think so if you go back to I mean, my grandparents the purpose doesn't have to be necessarily found in the work itself the purpose is that i'm doing this to to support my family to be able to then for to go on to do greater things so when my grandparents set up their own business which was a fashion retail unit in a northern town mm. 70 years ago and they're, they're both passed away now but in terms of their what they what they did the purpose was my grandfather didn't find a purpose in 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 ladies <laughs> ladies garments at all but he saw the purpose in that having their own business allowed their kids to go to school and to have do things that they found so i think this purpose thing in work <clears throat> i think we've got to be careful to say that you're going to find purpose in everything that you do in a workplace setting because that is that puts a lot of pressure on organizations to say so where is my purpose i understand i I talk about it all the time in terms of purpose, but I think per- people will find purpose in their own their own their own meaning of purpose in what they do and how they relate that back to their own lives at the same points. Mm. Um, so I think that oh, yes, generationally, that what they're saying now is that young people want to find purpose in what that organisation is doing in terms of co- corporate social responsibility. How it feels, I don't agree. I think everybody feels that the planet doesn't need to doesn't want to die, or the things that these organisations are doing. Are helping social groups and the planet and everybody live longer and, and be healthier. So I think that's happened for, forever. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that's mm. just because it's. Um, so I agree with your point. I'm just the the bar around emotional intelligence more that I still think there is a, a, a oh, yeah, sorry. around men who are, who think that that we are rational and logical and we still make decisions that way. And also, it's not it's not. It's just not the done thing to talk about emotions necessarily, and we'll do it in a jokey, bantery way. But actually, it's, it, we're missing the point for me slightly, and what emotional intelligence is. And I've talked about that before. I think I think still think emo- as soon as you say emotion, you've primed you prime someone thinking, oh, it's soft and fluffy. Do you know yeah. that? Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. Um, so it's it's how do you <laughs> try and get that that yeah that that stigma away from and it's same with with mental well-being and mental health and those sorts of things we're becoming much more 
much more widespread and people are talking about it much more often but again that's something that people still are, and, and men particularly are still struggling to say yeah i'm struggling with this right now yeah i, I agree and and that comes back to the you know some of the societal expectations you know and you know, is that is that different in the uk to how it is in in other countries mm. you know, yes i think so um you know, and, and there is there are different um rules whether they be display rules or feeling rules you know display rules as in what what you can show you know so can you know yeah. who can who can show what emotions in what context and then feeling rules what emotions am i allowed to feel you know at the risk of a, a shameless plug you know the the second episode of this podcast was about emotional inauthenticity you know i interviewed a um a detective inspector from Greater Manchester Police, and you know, she she talked at length about how you know, the feeling rules of the that she experienced anyway within the police is that you are not allowed to be scared. Mm. You are absolutely allowed to be angry, but any fear that you experience has to be turned into something else. You you know you're just just not allowed. So even if you feel it, you got to change it um, and turn it into um, and turn it into something else. And and the the challenge with that then is that shapes the decisions that we make because if we if we feel like we can't do something or that we have to do something then that limits the decisions that you know that limits the choices and options that you've got available for what you could decide to do you know so if you're not allowed to show a particular emotion or you're not allowed to talk about a particular topic whatever that is then that 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 limits your options in terms of the the available decisions for you and that can have profound effects on yeah, both physical and mental health absolutely definitely uh, but and i think that we, we know though that it's hard to suppress that emo- i think humans recognize someone is scared or there is fear i think to try and convert that into a an anger or a, a more you know a toward positive not because anger is is a positive emotion in in terms of how, how it's seen in the brain but i think that what what i'm trying to say is that actually we can't really suppress it so you know, other human beings will be able to detect if you are scared do you know what i mean it's really hard to turn around and say to yourself don't look scared or don't do i mean we do we see it and it's, we try and do it but i still think the, the human being is a very good bs detector as well and i think that we can tell if people are trying to suppress a certain emotion because we see that in the workplaces try not don't look angry don't look frustrated but actually we know if a boss is frustrated and they're trying to not show it, you know, you can see it, you can feel it, you feel it with your mm-hmm. partner, you feel it with your, with your, with your kids, you know, I can, you can see it all the time. So I think yeah. that, I mean, that's, I haven't listened to that, that episode, so I will go back and listen to that one because that sounds fascinating actually. Yeah, it's, yeah it is. It's this, and I think it's, <clears throat> I think it still is our second most popular downloaded ever episode, I think. Yeah, and which I guess you might expect because it was the second one that we've ever done. You know, so therefore it was. It's, it's been out. You know, it's been one. Of, it's been out for one of the longest periods of time. But it's, either way, it's it's really good. Um, yeah, Sarah Sarah Lenny Sarah Jane Lenny, she's wonderful. She's a really good episode. I'll check that out definitely. Uh, okay, so one of the other things that I'm conscious of then is um, that we I think we've done a really good job of talking about how these different aspects or these different factors that affect decision making in the workplace and some of the pitfalls that that can that can manifest in terms of you know as we as we just talked about that you know the 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 emotions you might be feeling might limit the amount of options that you feel you've got available which then affects the decisions that you make 
we've also talked about how things like um, uh, your physiological state, so how awake you are, how uh, energized you are, what kind of things you're fueling your body with. Some of those things then will also affect those decisions that um, that you've uh, decisions that you might make. So what I'm wondering is, should we kind of um, shift the shift it a little bit then to talk about well, what can people do then either what can individuals do what can leaders do what can workplaces do to improve the quality of decision making in their in themselves their teams or their organizations okay yeah i think that's that sounds like it because I, I think we're, the, the, earlier on in this program we talked about that what we're here to do is is help people be better and mm. therefore to give them direction so that and solutions or ideas i think is a is a good is a good place yeah. to go yeah. and i think and that's why i brought in the, the questions bit on that last yeah. okay on, on yeah that, because i think it's the react to respond mechanism the best way to do that is to ask a question is to be able to then turn turn whatever you're doing into in, into a question and i see a question as it's almost like a, a flashlight so there's a, a brilliant book by um, Warren Berger. So a beautiful book of questions, I think is the title. Um, oh, that sounds right up my street. Yeah, it's, it is an awesome read. He is he's a, he's a journalist, but he's done a lot of work. He calls, him, he's, he calls himself a questionologist, which is a, a brilliant title. So that's his new title, a questionologist. But his book is, is focused around questions that help you make better decisions. Um, and relationships and but I think that what he talks about this flashlight that the a question is a flashlight to um, to, to, to put on a decision which is so the decision is the dark room and the flashlight is the question and the better okay. that the question the wider the beam of the flashlight and therefore you are giving yourself more options to make therefore a better decision and shine it on that on that problem so I think that questions first and foremost are, are like listening you talked about listening before listening is, mm. is actually a skill people don't realize it's a skill and it's something that you can get better at and you can improve in but questions are, are on the other side of it another skill that i think would would really help in people's decision because with the question it then allows you to create the other alternatives those options and takes it away from it's either a or it's b that's that's the thing that I always and, and an open question particularly can go and can go and open the mind to think actually what what am I missing here right now one of the, the best questions I always ask myself whenever I'm about to make a decision or doing something that I maybe should stop doing to make a decision to do something else is is what I'm doing right now helping and I know that's not a it's a kind of a, an open question but is what I'm doing right now helping this either this situation helping me to so as an example is me pouring another glass of wine is that helping me uh to then not either have a hangover the next day or is it me be able to uh, be the best partner i can be or for me to keep my weight at where i want it to be is what i'm doing right now is me engaging in a in a, a tit for tat email exchange with a colleague is is what i'm doing right now helping and that then allows you to think about the next decision, the next step that you take in that process. Mm. And that's a very, it's a very basic question, but it's, it's helped me a lot over the, uh, over the years. And it's those sorts of things that what matters most right now in, in, 
for if we're in a team meeting what matters most for us to achieve this and then we can start coming with options but if the, the better that question is the more beautiful as Warren Berger says the question is the more options we can generate and therefore create the better solution and make the better decision now that's all well and good if you've got lots and lots of time and you can spend the time to be able to think about those questions sometimes we've got to make these quick quick reactions and quick decisions and they those quick decisions don't need a lot of thinking power necessarily but when you do need to have a more complex situation that's maybe causing you more problems than it needs to an open question i think is a, is a massively powerful tool um but definitely check out that book warren Berger's book it's 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 great um and I'll, I'll make sure i put a link to it in the um uh, in the show notes as well yeah definitely um so what what else can we do so we've we, i guess the one thing that that is is the is is the key is this is creating alternatives i think that people when we when we have a, a decision to make do we actually follow a process so is there a process that people follow when they're trying to because making a decision tackling a problem sometimes they can be the same sort of thing and and mm-hmm. i'm not sure whether people day in day out actually they tend to go with their and maybe a gut instinct is the right way to go or this feels right and there's different research around actually is a gut instinct the right way to go or is it actually more of a process methodical logical steps that we should take but i think that there are there are different ways of of going about decision making but the first thing is to is to question the information that you're being given first of all mm-hmm. is to question the information that you've received whether that's your own information or information that's been given to you by somebody else yep. and then once you've been able to analyze that information and data where's it come from and how has it been analyzed effectively then we start creating these options and almost it's framing the problem in a different way you probably heard of this but question yep. storming which is about looking at the problem from different angles to make sure we're actually answering the question we're actually answering the problem that we need to solve right now rather than just going to that first immediate solution because i think we're we're born out of at times just we've got action 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 doing something is better than not doing something at all or or over deliberating or paralysis by analysis those sort of things there are paralysis by analysis is 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 a very common uh that it's almost procrastination isn't it in a way yeah. sometimes yeah, you're, yeah. you're going you're over egging it you're over understanding it over focusing it and that's why in certainly in organizations where prototyping so go and do something see how it works come back let's get the feedback and see how how, how that's 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 improved the situation or have we move forward and then a prototype again move step forward moving moving waves but i think the only way you can do the the prototyping is by assessing what the problem is and then creating some sort of options and solutions and 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 alternatives and those alternatives need to come from a diverse group of people who have Mm. who have looked at it through different lenses and through a different viewpoint and therefore going back to that group thing thing if we can get people even in that meeting who have who have got the opportunity to say what they feel but if not go and this is where networks come in really handy. So if you've got a really good network and if you're, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you're on your own and you're trying to drive a product forward or you're an individual consultant, who is that person that you can go and push and all your solutions to and get them to give you a really objective or at least challenging viewpoint that's different mm-hmm. to your own? I don't think enough people, and whether that goes back to the, the, 
the fear of of saying actually do you know what i don't like it because of this this and this and therefore they they oh i've made a mistake and that that's not great yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes me look stupid and all that that cycle again but actually being have having a, a network of individuals and whether that's at right at the top of your organization you have a senior team where you can go and ask for diverse opinions and challenge your thinking i think is vitally important so i think for, so first of all ask ask questions that's what more my, my key things to create the alternatives yep. frame the problem make sure you're answering the problem that you need to answer you're not just jumping straight into what we've already done before in the past and we're just continuing off previous information make sure you're asking other people you're going and actually understanding and getting these alternative views and you uh, people who will challenge and push and, and and question and query your thought process to make sure that the decision is 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 effective um and and in terms of when we're looking at biases and, and assumptions, you could go through a whole stack of, of sort of the biases that stand out. But the key ones for me are, are the overconfidence. So I've done this before a million times. Mm. I'm so experienced. I'm 15 years, 20 years experience. This is the answer straight away. Certain circumstances, that's, that's great. But in other circumstances, actually, there will be a nuance. And particularly now in the new COVID-19 new normal world, things won't be the same as they were before. And I'm not sure anybody can turn around and go, I've been here, seen it and, and done it. Um, there was just a very quick story about yeah, guy, Matthew Broderick, who is the, uh, who's the, the brigadier general for Homeland Security. When, uh, when the Katrina, you know, the, yeah. the yeah. Uh, attack uh, hit New Orleans. Okay. And yeah. he, he was, Massive experience in natural disasters elsewhere, but had never, as it turned out, never had an experience in a in a, a, a civilization, a town or a city that had lived that was under under sea level, and therefore has always waited to hear what was happening in terms of the ground reports, the ground information. So his, his troops on the ground would then feedback information, come back to him. But what they didn't realize and didn't didn't wasn't aware was that actually this was a completely different scenario and different because this this the New Orleans is sat on the sea level, whereas everywhere else he'd uh, he'd saved and helped was above above sea level, and that mm -hmm. just one little nuance was a big difference to actually why it wasn't as a successful recovery operation as maybe some of the other places. So it's relying on that overconfidence that I've seen this, I've done it, I know it, don't worry about it, I've got this done. Actually, is a is a is a big pitfall. I think um, the the confirmation bias yeah. as well, a big one. You we always if we see something, see a bit of data that confirms our our, our thoughts already then we'll go for it if we just we go and speak to the people who love us and like us and they say whatever that that, that we agree with or they agree with us it gives us a, a stronger decision making uh, thoughts say yeah i'm doing the right thing so confirmation again that that talks about going to speak to people who've got conflicting views to your own and i think on, on conflict i think that's one of the things that's important is that we need conflict in the world. We need conflict mm. when we're in organizations. And I think we're going to get conflicts wherever you go, but this cognitive conflict, cognitive conflict where we're, people are sparking new ideas off each other and that they're changing their perspectives and changing the, the answer to the solution, I think is great. The other the sort of effect conflict where you're having personality clashes and you're having people who don't really get on with each other because of the relationships. That's a, the, leaders have got to balance the, the two. I've um, slightly gone off tangent there, but I think conflict... Yes, cognitively 
is what sparks great ideas in organizations. Conflict is something that, but we're going to, but we get mixed up sometimes in the, in the cognitive conflict and this personality clash relationship yeah. conflict clash. And I think we can separate the two actually, if we, if we're good at what we do in terms of getting the people in the room and, and giving them a bit of, bit of guidance of what we're mm. looking for. Um, and then, and then the other things like, um, halo horns i mean i was in recruitment for 15 years before i moved into business psychology and one of the things that i always advise and guided people when they were recruiting is that don't listen that first 20 seconds 30 seconds that first answer to the question people make an, a, a belief around that person's capability right from the word go we believe mm -hmm. that what they've said they've given an amazing answer which we felt was robust and clear and, and particularly if you're interviewing on your own we can't listen to the answer, write the note down and, and assess at the same point. So I think those things that, and it's the same whether you're recruiting or you just sat with, a, with one of your team doing a review meeting, we can't assess them, review them and listen to them at the same point. We've got to do things systematically. So whatever they say, whether it's amazing or whether it's rubbish, we can't take that as, as that, that's the whole impression of that, of that human being, which I think we do a lot as well that first impression is a big thing whether it's in a social setting or oh, that person said something a bit weird and that that's who they are and that, that would cloud them in that viewpoint forever well mm -hmm. that's not that's not true necessarily um what else phil what, what have i missed in terms of some of the other biases that we need to look out for um so what i will do is i'll put in the show notes here. there's a really um, pretty and useful infographic about um, kind of putting together a, a lot of the heuristics and biases. So I'll um, I, I'll, I'll pull that together and I'll put that in the show notes um, as well. Uh, I agree with you in terms of um, kind of questioning the information that, that you have. So one of my favourite questions, which um, often I can get away with because either either a I'm a consultant um, or b um, because I just don't necessarily care that much if I offend, offend people. Um, so when someone kind of, especially in an organizational setting, when somebody come presents information to me to say, this is the problem, this is what's going on, this is what's going wrong, this is whatever. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask in response is what verifiable evidence do we have that that's the case? So you know, beyond your opinion, which is brilliant, what verifiable evidence do we have that that is the case? And, and often I get, oh, I don't know. And then my response to that would be, well, can we find some before we prove before we move forward with that as a solution? Sorry, before we move forward with with that as, as agreeing that's what the issue is, can we get some verifiable evidence that that is the issue before we then move into finding the solution or whatever that might be? Or likewise, when people come to with a solution, I say, what verifiable evidence do we have that that is the right solution? Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, can we find some first then? You know, can we what can we do to just to verify that what you're saying is as accurate as it can be so that we can establish whether that's the the, the way to go from here so just to kind of to to yeah to to try and challenge and validate what what is being presented as facts because it may or may not be and um, yeah. yeah there was a really interesting discussion that happened on twitter just this week uh, ross garner who works for emerald works is twitter handles at ross garner ew we're talking about some of the COVID-19 graphs that come out from John Hopkins University. And one of the challenges that we, you have when you look at the graph is that they've, they squeeze the, the, the levels. So what looked like 
um, equals equals steps in terms of volume numbers of cases actually isn't so you've got like 100 is equally spaced with 1000 which is equally spaced with 10,000 which is equally spaced with 100,000 so um you know, so what what might be 11,000 for say the UK well there wasn't anyway what might look as one number if you look at the it was looking at the US in particular and it actually looked the US looks quite close to everybody else but that's only because they've collapsed the values in the um, on the uh, y-axis on the side. Right. And if you interrogate the data more, actually, you'd see that there's a there's a much broader range in the data if if the increments at which the data was positioned were were accurately spaced out. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but if you just look at that at face value, then you go, oh, okay, without doing that kind of yeah. In interrogation into the yeah, or additional investigation interrogation into the data um, <clears throat> so one of the other things that I, I do a lot to try and improve decision making within organizations is to to say what question are we trying to answer so if, if I'm working with a client and we have an agenda for a meeting I won't have agenda items I will have questions that we're trying to answer you know, so we, we need to answer this question, this question, this question, this question, and this question. These are the questions that we need to answer in this meeting. Are there any other questions that you think we need to answer? Because I, I think, and that's a, an idea I stole from Nancy Klein. Um, I think that people think better in response to questions than they do in response to um, agenda items or suppositions or, or whatever that might be. Um, and what else was I going to add? There was something else, but I can't remember what it was, and I didn't write it down. I'm regretting that now. Oh, um, I think it was, so. It was at an individual uh, level. Um, is ask yourself as often as you can, what am I feeling right now? So, in the same way that you had your question of, you know, how is, is it, how is this helping me? Is that your question? Yeah, is, is what I'm doing helping? Yeah. Is what I'm doing helping? Um, so, one of my favourite questions to ask is, what am I feeling? What am I feeling right now? Because if I can, if I can name what I feel, then, so I talked to it way, way back at the start of this episode about the refractory period. You know, this this kind of filter that this thing that only allows you to filter in information that supports the emotion you're experiencing. One of the one of a really effective way to to beat that or to overcome that refractory period or overcome that filter is to name the emotion. Because if you can name the emotion, then what you're doing is you're you're bringing that 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 kind of cognitive executive functioning in, because you're 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 naming whatever the emotion is, and then it it increases the likelihood that you're going to be able to take in other data that um, challenges the emotion that you're experiencing so if you are scared of something this is what am i feeling right now i'm scared okay what am i scared of or what am i scared about or what you know what is it that's making me scared then that can help you come out of being you know in the midst of that emotionally charged episode so then, and if you can do that then you will often have more decisions that are open to you or more options that are open to you which means you can make more choices which means you can make other decisions definitely yeah I think um, I think that, that this this process bit I think has been talked about a lot in, in just in this current in this current state um, in that you can choose how you respond to the media you can choose how you respond and yeah. I think without without the that that question and without a bit of process in it you can't get to your choices do you know what I mean but, but without being in that more executive function about being able to think about the choice and what what is the best option 
rather than just the reaction. I still go back to this reacting to responding. I think if we can respond, we, we can make better decisions, we make better choices rather than just reacting. Yeah, and, and what you, you know, what individuals or teams might want to do is pull together a template of, you know, some key questions like what instinctively, what do I want to do? What would be a different choice from the norm? Um, if, uh, if I could choose anything, what would I choose? You know, so you could just have a, and, and it's back to your reframing, um, reframing the, the decision from earlier on, you know, so you, you might have a, a, a set of four key questions that you might want to ask yourself or teams. Because one of you know my part of what I do, um, I do a lot of behavior analysis work where, you know, I'm, I'm brought in to uh, either watch videos or to um, be present in negotiations or interviews or um, other settings where you know what we're looking to establish is what somebody actually saying, you know, what's what's really going on here, um, and my gut tells me stuff, and then I, I, I acknowledge that and go, thank you very much, gut. That's really useful. That's a really useful data point, but that's a single data point. I want to look for other data points now to try and overcome the confirmation bias that you talked about earlier on. Yeah. My gut says this. All right, thanks, gut. That's that's really useful. Now let's see what else I can find that either supports or challenges what my gut says. Um, and so that acknowledging the gut as a data point, I think, is important. So if your instincts are telling you do this, then brilliant. You know, um, and if you're in a if you're in a life or death situation and you have, you know, you've got to make a decision in that moment, then yeah, go with your gut. But if you're not, which is a lot of the time in the workplace, we're not acknowledge the gut decision and then think, okay, well, what else can I do though? You know, if I had more time, what would I do? If I had more flexibility, what would I do? What, you know, if, if I could uh, start from scratch, what would I do? You know, there's a whole host of questions that you can ask yourself or, or your teams. And I think they can be really useful ways of yeah, just reframing it so that you, you don't get caught up in that initial, you know, mental shortcut bias to, to leap for a particular solution. And, and then what, what you're doing is actually um, saving yourself time in the long run, because rather than just going straight to the shortcut and doing something that may, may work, but it, but it, I think we know that the, the, the facts and research out there, the decisions we make aren't particularly effective. We're not great at making decisions as human beings, ultimately. Do you know, we're not great at mm. when it, some of the things that we do decide to go ahead with because we go for action rather than maybe reflection and understanding and assessing and then moving into, into then creating a plan of attack. I think because we go to move, 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 we then have to go back on, and retrace our steps anyway. Do you know what I mean? We have to go back and then, and that retracing those steps causes conflicts and relationship issues and challenging of, 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 of the, of ourselves. And it, so I think by doing it right first time, it's a, it's a phrase that, that is used quite a lot, but I don't think you can do anything necessarily perfectly right first time, but at least, you know, really assessing things effectively first time around mm. can then give, can give you a really solid foundation to be able to make, the best possible choice at that moment in time and that decision at that moment in time. And that sounds like a good place to, 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 to kind of put it all together, I think, and, uh, and to draw us to a close. So, um, is, uh, is there anything else then any other, uh, no, that's not true. So we've talked about, we've, we've referenced a whole host of books and stuff as we've been working our way through. So I've been keeping a note of those, um, but if, uh, so if there is anything else in particular that you would recommend for people to read, Simon, can you just ping me over that in an email so that I can add it to our kind of yeah. references for, um, for today? Are there any other 
Um, any other myths or misconceptions around this area that we haven't explored that you think we need to put to bed before we close? Um, no, I think, to be honest with you, I think we've covered is that the key one, the rational, logical creatures. That's that's the key one. I think we need to. The thing about these biases and her it's very difficult for us to spot them in ourselves. We can't really see them ourselves when we're doing them. So we've got to get other people to to help us out with that. But until we, uh, but we've got to be prepared to be open. So the rational, logical creature, I think, is a big myth. I think that the groups make better decisions you know teams make better decisions again i think is a is a bit of a myth because we think that when people come together they make the best decision but actually we've, we've already said it needs to be a diverse team with mm. people who are prepared to challenge each other um is it does a decision need to be quick or slow it needs to be a, a fast decision a, a gut decision we need to go with a gut reaction again I think the jury's out really. I think we need to, there are certain situations where gut works, but actually most of the time a, a, a thoughtful process is, is, is what's required. Um, I think, yeah, I think that for, for, for me are the, are the three, the three top myths, but I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are lots of others out there that we, mm. we haven't covered today. Okay. Uh, anyone that you'd recommend for me to seek out to get as a guest on the podcast? Um, I've, we've already talked about his book, but I think if you got Warren Berger on, as a, I think okay. he would be a fantastic guest because I think this this a questionologist is somebody who would be uh, would would yeah. I just don't think we ask great questions as in as enough within our within our life, and they they really do help us be be better at what we do in any walk of life so i recommend warren if you can get him on that would be brilliant fabulous wonderful thank you i will definitely do my best to do so um, and is there anything else anything else that you're thinking feeling or want to say before i bring us together and please no other than thank you very much for uh, for inviting me on i've uh, i've really enjoyed the, the the conversation i think we've taken a a bit we've gone off in different directions and i, and I love that and i think um I think it's a really nice format, really good format, uh, and uh, look forward to uh, to keeping in touch. Oh, thank you very much, I, I, and thank you very much for, for your time, and um, you know, really appreciate you coming on. And one thing I forgot to do though was, if people wanted to get hold of you, um, where could they find you? So yeah, um, I am head of learning development at Phoenix Leaders. So um, you can either go to www.phoenixleaders.co.uk or you can get me on Esther Ashton at phoenixleaders.co.uk. I'm based in Central London. Um, so yeah feel free to get in touch fab and i'll put links to both the website and i'll put your email in the show notes if that's okay as well. yeah sounds good wonderful all right and that case then simon thank you so much for your time thank you very much for coming on the podcast and yeah like i said i look forward to keeping in touch thank you you've been listening to the emotion at work podcast and if you got this far you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace either within individuals between people in teams or in organizations as a whole so head over to the Emotion at Work hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.